Welcome to this episode of the Tez Magazine Debrief. This week we are looking at the 6th of August edition of the magazine and fresh off their respective holidays we have Gronja Hallahan. Hi Gronja. Hello, hello. And Dan Worth. Hi Dan. Hello, hello. Are you both COVID secure having returned? Well, Dan Dan went to the north but Gronja actually left the country. Yeah, and I think my COVID rates were possibly lower than where Dan went. So Yeah, I, I definitely will be doing a test next time I go to any outside thing because I was at a large gathering and so who knows but hopefully not it's, it's amazing that we've got to the point of covid like normality now where large gathering it has that sort of ominous tone mm, to it. yeah like I was at a large gathering um, of course most schools are not in large gatherings at the moment because they're on holiday but we are still working and uh, we have some lovely features for you so let's get going Okay, so feature one, uh, Gronje, we're going to start with a feature that's written by this new up-and-coming journalist who's not at all uh, egotistical, is that right? No, I wouldn't say I was egotistical. This is yes. my piece. It's Can I, Gronje's my piece again. Piece because Can I, I've, got a much better, I've got a much better introduction to this piece. This is a piece by Gronje. Gronje, take it away. Oh, yes. that's nice. <laughs> See? <laughs> Dan, that smile. I like that. And this piece, the reason why Dan has said this, because my piece is all about subtraction. And no, it's not a maths piece. It's actually about how in school leadership, in the actual operational side of running a school, there is a tendency to add on. And you can see how this happens. You know, homework policies are a great example of this. Like Homework is often a problem in schools. We're trying to get buy-in from students and staff. So let's imagine a school where teachers aren't always setting it, students aren't always doing it, parents are complaining. Your next step is you rewrite the homework policy. So who does that job? The head teacher gives it to like the assistant head. The assistant head looks at the problem and looks at the existing policy and decides, I know how I'm going to solve it. Let's move it all online. Then everyone gets logins, they get trained. And so you keep the old practice of writing it in the homework diaries, but you've also now got the online system as well. But Homework still isn't solved. So what do you do? Well, now you've had a restructure and the deputy head is in charge of teaching and learning. So it's their problem. They're going to sort it out. And they decide let's do a centralised system. So you've still got the online system. You've got a centralised system and you've still got the homework diaries. And it just continues on and on like this. And it's a really familiar picture that you get, get in schools. And what can we do about it? So in this piece, I spoke to the author of a book called Subtract called Lydie Klutz. And it's a book I really recommend. It's not your typical edgy book, but every senior leader, every teacher should read it. And we look at how you can apply his ideas about effective subtraction to a school or college. So things like correspondence, even your stock cupboards and the curriculum itself. So why do I like this piece? Well, I think for a profession where we're continually told, what about this and can you include that? The most powerful thing we can say before we add something is what comes out then. We can't just add and add and add. And it's really good to hear that taking away is sometimes the better option. And that was a very non-subtracted explanation, Gronia. <laughs> oh, but I enjoyed it. This, this feature... I, I was quite surprised because I'm I'm a little bit suspicious of these type of management books sometimes. But I thought this one was excellent. I thought the yeah, the way uh, the way you knitted together the book and then the the teacher comment worked really nicely, and you could see the practical 
side of this. And I think it reminded me a bit of how much research is poorly applied in schools because no one thinks about the implementation. But the feature explains really nicely that, you know, these are ideas from the business world, but actually they're easily applicable in, in schools and easily applicable in TES offices, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, well, I think you're right because I think we, we you know, like any organization and, and it's certainly, I read this and thought, yeah, it rings true of places I've been where having an idea or changing something or going, okay, there's a, something that happened and we need to make sure it doesn't happen again or let's make sure it can be better just comes with this kind of, this kind of, oh, well, we'll just do it. And it's like, you know, how are you going to do it? And who's going to do it? And do we need training? Do we need new software? Do we know how to do it? How often are we going to do it? Are we going to, how are we going to report the process of doing it? And it's like, those things sound really, but when you say that in a meeting, sometimes people sort of, you can look a bit like, oh, problems or, oh, just, just say yes. But it's almost like, well, if you're going to do something new or change something, you have to think it through and work out how, and is it going to be better or is it going to actually deliver an improvement or do you really need to do it? Yes, something went wrong, but was it just a kind of a small scale one-off thing that happened because of a set of unique circumstances or was it a major problem? And all the things you talked about. And if you do that up front, you often probably save yourself a lot of work in the long run. And this kind of article makes that same point, doesn't it? It's like, you've got to think carefully about, well, why are you adding that on? Is it going to help or is it going to become a hindrance? And actually, could you do more with less? You know, if you took away some policy things that you do, just because you've always done that thing, that's like, do you need to do that every week? Does that email roundup, whatever it is, need to be sent? I know, whatever it might be. But do you know what I mean? These things that one does on a weekly basis or daily basis do they have a place? And sometimes that's a harder thing to do, isn't it? To remove stuff because it's taking things away from people and the people like what they do because it keeps them safe. And it's almost. quicker sometimes. It's exactly that, Dan. Like every organisation needs mm. a Dan that sits there and goes, well, okay, actually, how are we going to do this? You need somebody in a school who's really into the operational side I think, I think side everyone just needs a Dan. Yeah. <laughs> first yeah <laughs> just generally i wish people that would be great you wouldn't download it? a dan was... from the app store i need a little download dan. A dan that's yeah. a good idea um, dan. but there's a it, it did remind me a bit of the marie Kondo thing and again yeah when you were talking mm. then dan it reminded me again you know is this needed or does it give you joy and mm. that does it give mm. you joy does it give you impact i guess is the question but it's a subtle tweak on that because she's not necessarily we're not really decluttering as such but it is subtracting and decluttering are slightly different i think yeah absolutely and it's looking it's taking the time before you implement something to consider okay let's think about the wider picture here let's think about the big picture like where does this all fit in and let's think of the best way to to solve it and it's you know it's one of the things we discuss in the the piece about communication when you I, i didn't have enough time to write you a short letter so i wrote you a long one and it's that it's easier sometimes yeah. just to go, yeah, here we go. We're going to do this because we're short on time. Schools are so short on time. You don't have that 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 capacity to sit and really, really think about how to do things well. And when you don't, when you rush that 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 point, then you're just going to mm. pay for it later on. And I think it's Definitely. it's something that we need to give more time to. Yeah, I like the Marie Kondo analogy because I think that is a good one because I, again, I do, I quite enjoy decluttering or throwing things away and I like, and it is that thing of thinking, you know, you find, you find that thing that you didn't throw away the last time you, you cleared out and you're like, why am I yeah. keeping this? And it really is that kind of, it's there. And if you just put it in a bin, you never, you almost never regret throwing it away. And to the, her point, which is like, you know, if you, you've got to be brutal sometimes to make the decision. It's the same with saying, well, actually, let's stop doing that. Or, no, I'm not going to make a change. And that's almost the harder thing to say sometimes because doing something feels like good work, doesn't it? I'm being productive. I'm, I'm implementing something. It's like, yeah, but mm. is, it, is that good? Like, is it really good? Or is it just work for work's sake sort of thing? Which is a very hard, it's a very 
modern mindset. I was isn't lucky it? enough to have a uh, lunch with fan of the pod, Rob Webster, recently, who's in charge of the Maximizing TAs pro- project. And and much of what Rob's done is about this. What TAs aren't your Swiss Army knife, guys. They 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 TAs are very very good at doing specific things if if you put the effort in and followed the the research properly and there, there's this notion of teaching can be very cluttered there's all these solutions everywhere and when you talk to rob about how his work into tas you see how decluttered the, the role of the ta needs to be but it, there's just this big extension of that isn't there with with schools at system level teachers at a pedagogy level and 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 tas as well the duplication that happens in the classroom is absolutely mad. Like when I think back to my training and the number of times I had to write out my lesson plan in very di- various different forms to fulfil the school's policy, it's just mind-blowing, actually, that anybody thought that was a good idea. And it's, t- it's just a waste of your, your professional skills, isn't it? It's not, it's not the best use of a teacher's time. And it's summer, right? Yes. So yes. everyone's decluttering their houses. Teachers are decluttering their classrooms. Maybe we should get a hashtag of some sort on Twitter mm-hmm. and get people to show us themselves throwing stuff out. Like oh, physically when you, when you take over a classroom from another teacher, I'd love to know which teacher has had to throw out the most number of bags of rubbish that they've, they've discovered in a classroom. So when this goes out, Gronya, you have to pose these questions. Okay. And we have to report back next week yes. and see how, whether this theoretical decluttering exercise has has... We, we can we can implement it or we can force teachers to throw some stuff out just for our podcast discussion. Yes, great idea. That sounds okay. good. Okay, so feature two. I'm going to talk about this one. And it, I didn't write it. So a novel thing for the podcast, someone talking about something they didn't write. Um, this one's about creativity in, in maths. And it's not saying that we need to make maths creative but it's talking about the need to bring out the natural creativity in maths and um, this piece discusses the context of a primary school where with the help of some external um, assistance if you want want for want of a better word they created these scenarios very similar to sort of project-based learning where maths was brought alive by uh, creative scenarios like baking and you know, a film script where all the baking goes wrong and all the cooking goes wrong. It sounds incredibly good fun and something that I'd have liked to have done myself at primary school. But I think it does start this wider debate about whether we find maths intrinsically fun. Is doing a sum fun or do you need to dress it up in a creative way to get people involved? And it's a really live issue for GCSE resets where a lot of the arguments in the FE sector is that we should make maths more functional and in, in effect, this is what this piece talks about. It's, it's, it's applied mathematics in a way. It's, it's maths in real life creative situations. So I thought I'd throw it open to you two. I mean, do you find maths fun? Is there joy in a times table, in, in a pure times table? Or is it more fun to do a, create a barn and do Pythagoras to do the roof? Well, do you do you, I I would say that the joy in maths for me is not there that often, but I do know those moments where you're trying to work something out on a piece of paper with doing some sums and you're you know, you're I don't know whatever it is, you're trying to work out your Christmas money spent on this is a making up example, and you're kinda of like, Well that's gonna cost seven pounds, that'd be twelve pounds, 
and I've got this much. It's like, and then and you sort of go, oh, I know if I could, and you work out, and suddenly the, the numbers make sense, don't they? You realise that yeah, we can afford that, or we'll still have enough money left over for the extra present for cousin, whatever. I don't know. It's not, it's not, it's not a great analogy, really, but it's something like that, and it suddenly makes sense, and that brings numbers to life, just because they become real to you and meaningful to your life in the way that if someone said. You know, at school, I like, work out the some of these, and you just think, why? It's completely arbitrary. <laughs> Dad in right? his maths class. But that's hard. Years that's a hard. Uh, why? Yeah, why? To the maths teacher. <laughs> why? But it's a hard thing to. Um, <laughs> it's a hard thing to. Um, that that is actually probably actually quite a lot. Um, it's a it's a it's hard to that to happen right in school because it isn't real. But that example in the piece of the kind of fun thing is good. But I suppose there's the danger sometimes that then the the activity becomes the memorable thing and not the yeah. maths but maybe you need to balance it because there must be there must be people who find maths intrinsically enjoyable in the same way there are for all subjects so maybe we should ask them what they enjoy about maths and see if we can sort of find it that out and turn it into a more wide-ranging thing i have to think that like find out what the minority who just naturally like it like about it and try and take that to the masses in a kind of more generalized way because there must be kids who love english and kids who don't like english is that maybe something like that but yeah so it's a difficult one, isn't it? The joy of maths is not something I don't think happens that often, but maybe others would say it does. I love you. algebra. So is that because you're an English teacher? Well, you just like the letters. I was so pleased. I was so <laughs> pleased that letters finally appeared in the classroom. I was like, yes, here's something I recognise. Um, I found it really difficult at first. And then my dad found me a little old book of algebra that I, I sat for hours. I remember waking up really early in the morning and doing like algebra before school and stuff, just because I found I could wow, do it. Wow. And um, this podcast just reveals so you were a um, child, you know, you're skipping school, but then you're doing algebra before you skip school. I mean, and I got a B in maths, and I think it's only because we had an algebra, a piece of coursework that was based on an algebra problem, which do this this thing, and I was really good at that, but dreadful at most of maths. But I loved algebra. I think I like the fact it balanced. Like, you know when you do the, chemist- the, the chem- chemistry equation mm. stuff, you have to balance the equations. I loved that. That was nice and logical. And That's what it is, isn't it? It's the yeah. balancing. It's the it's the making sense of mess. And it's sort of going, hang on at that. And suddenly it all just... Well, I was going to say, it's sense. like... It um, rules that I could follow. <laughs> it's like when you when I watched the beautiful A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe film or the um, Enigma Code one with Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm. And suddenly yeah. this hugely complex maths is solving stuff. And... Some of the podcasts I've listened to recently where like some guy, it was a Matthew Said or Side, sorry, podcast, and he was talking about this this um bomber pilot who did some complex maths to like do the loop loop and it was all speed. And suddenly you think, wow, maths really cool, look at all this stuff it can do. Mm-hmm. But on a more geekier end, and I don't know whether to admit this, I remember one of the things that fascinated me. I used to have a keyboard, and because I'm quite I have a very short attention span. In maths class, I used to get quite bored. So I used to just do numbers to see what would happen. So if you add the oh, numbers so, uh, in... You say keyboard, do you mean a calculator? Calculator, sorry, calculator, yeah. So if you add, the, if you do one, two, three plus and go up the keyboard and add, add the number that those three make and go across the top and then down, it's two, 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 zero. And if you do it in reverse, it also equals two, two, zero. And I was fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. I just remember thinking... Yeah. Yeah, there are lots of things like that with numbers that are like kind of these amazing, like if you time something by something, yeah, exactly. it becomes the same number. Yeah, and they are amazing, aren't they? And I mean, maths is, they do say maths is, a, yeah. is an art, don't they? And it's a creative, I mean, people who study it at like university level, you know, is in, you know, these are 
professor of mathematics and you think well surely we've done all the maths <laughs> but obviously Quite we haven't some damn words <laughs> we've done We're all still the maths. finding prime numbers and things like that what's the name of the sequence the amazing sequence oh fibonacci, fibonacci. yeah all that sort amazing. of i love that yeah. stuff and i think mm. that yeah i think that is creative and but yeah. i don't well also but i don't, I don't know if that always i mean i went to school 20 20 years ago now so I'm very out of touch, but I don't know if my at the time that came across enough. I don't think that those that joy but you've of maths got to have such a strong grounding in like the foundation yeah, knowledge yeah. to get to that point. Yeah. We, we definitely did the Fibonacci stuff when we were at school. I remember doing it. That I was wasn't at school with you. Yeah. No, but we we are of the same generation. We're in the same school year, so we are we in the same school the same, year. Yeah, we'd have done I the don't same know. stuff. You are right. That foundational maths is is. Is, is so key it's i guess what this piece is doing is saying well can we make this foundational maths can we find that joy in it can we find that creativity to make it feel like you're in control of the numbers rather than the numbers being in control of, of, of you as such and and people yeah, can be a bit sniffy about that but I, I quite applaud it you know like i can imagine my child coming home it's a bit like times tables rock stars right i don't know if your kids do that yeah. my yeah, kids yeah, absolutely do. love it and yeah. it's 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 yeah it's fun and it's okay to say learning's fun nowadays without the learning itself being fun i mean they're only playing it because there's they can be a rock star let's be honest they're not playing it because <laughs> of the times tables there's, there's not intrinsic joy in learning it it's because they want the avatar and they want to beat their friends and yeah, there's all those yeah. elements part of it so yeah i mean i think it's easy to be sniffy about these types of features but i think there's something really important in it do you know what, what struck me well, when i was reading it there's a lot going on like you're acting in the play you're calculating the baking ingredients you're designing the the biscuits like how amazing are primary school teachers that they can split themselves between all those different topics and that you know not just that you've got all the different needs of those learners in the room at the same time yeah like yeah. blimey and then it, it just, I just thought it was really tough and I love the fact it was a bakery because like it's the perfect example of a profession where you have so many different subjects coming together and yeah. you know you think they've got rid of food tech from an A level I was the only boy in my school to do food tech oh were you and I tried to cook um Cornish pasties and sorry Dan Dan's Cornish and this is going to offend him and I mistakenly used puff pastry and I couldn't get them out of the oven and then the because they'd grown <laughs> so big that they got trapped between the two metal grills <laughs> and then the food tech teacher refused to eat any of it, <laughs> despite <laughs> me. Oh, that's this podcast every week. It does reverse things. Now we're learning. John made the world's <laughs> worst awful. Cornish pasties. What is a Cornish pasty made? <laughs> and actually, oh, Gornia. No, but like, what sort of pastry I'm, is it? Short crust, surely. Is it? Yes. Yeah, must be. No, isn't it a bit more stodgy? Like, it's it's more like when you have um, what are those pies? Like a steak and kidney pie kind of pastry. Yeah, that's short crust pastry, that is. That's not a short crust pastry. It's a different sort of pastry. It's different short pastry. No, not... It's not no, it's, 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 it's is it short, short crust. crust. Yeah. yeah. It's not the heavier on. one. No, that's like puff. More... No, puff is lighter. No, short crust. Well, puff's the layers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Let's find out. Some food tech teachers will know. Yeah, let's, let's big big shout out to the food tech teachers. Well, I'm looking, I'm looking online and it's short saying... Crust. 500 grams of strong bread flour <laughs> Can you just, just to make a short crust pastry. What sort of pastry is it? 
That is, that's literally what I Googled because I thought, well, I better see how Google, creative but, uh, this piece has made us that we've got onto mm. these. Exactly, yeah. um, so we'll leave that there, but um, it, check it out. And I think it will give people some really good ideas about how to bring maths, uh, make maths more of a creative or bring out the creativity of maths, I think we should call it, because maths is already creative, but it's just bringing that element out of it. Okay, Dan. We're going to have a story time now. So if you're listening to this, sit sit quietly, hands on laps, legs crossed. That that that's right. Gather gather round, draw the curtains, light the fire, get pour yourself a nice drink. We're going to talk about stories um, because that's where everything comes from, right? Stories and and the sagas and the epics of old and and stories passed down from generation to generation and myth and legend and all that good stuff. And actually, it kind of follows on from what we were just talking about, which is why creativity. The creativity of a story helps us learn better than just sort of pure factual. Here are some facts you should know. Or here are some things you should know. And it's Alex Quigley in the um, the ruminating on research column talking, making a very sort of interesting point and, and bringing in some additional research to sort of make his point about how we learn better often from stories from a, from a story device than just the, the sort of straight presentation of information. And sort of why is that? And and it immediately, and he he talks about history or history teaching expert Christina Council in this piece. And I immediately thought of history when I was reading this piece, because history is is stories, isn't it? It's the stories of humans and what they've done. And yet, how many children are so uninterested in things like the Tudors or, you know, and all that? Because it's sort of it just seems dry and boring. But if you turned it into a if you said it was fictional and told sold it in a sort of Game of Thrones type thing, because Game of Thrones was a kind of highly complex, you know, intergenerational Henry the Eighth dynasty. It's gotta be a Game of Thrones character. I mean yeah, do you know what I mean? It's like the the way Game of Thrones was structured, it was so complex, multi-layered, and, and people, young, particularly young people, get they love all that folklore, like Lord of the Rings, they love it all, they'll research it, they get obsessed with it. But yeah, if you said, oh, here's literally actually really happened, and there were dynasties and warring factions and sisters beheading eat the, eat their sisters and just crammed up the crown. But for some reason at school, often it's just, oh, God, history, boring, but give me Is a fictional a thing about secondary Lord of the Rings. <laughs> that used to kill yeah. me. I used to, oh, God, I hated that. Uh, so yeah exactly so why is it why can't you not the story so if someone told you the story of Henry as a sort of as a story about there was a king and then said actually this all really happened and we're going to learn it wouldn't that engage you more but obviously it's difficult and you can't just turn everything into a you can still tell of, it as a story, a story and, and tell them it's true too I, 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 yeah, yeah yeah that's what I'm saying it's just I'm just saying that I don't want to I don't imply that any subject can just be turned into a sort of whimsical story and that will work I just because I don't yeah. want to be sound too simplified but I just thought it's a good piece because I think it makes a good important point that if you can tell a story, you can hook people. And that's why I was always told once, my final thought on this, I was told once, you should never say in this lecture or in this presentation at the start of something, because people immediately go, oh, lecture, president. You should try and say, I'm going to tell you a story, because people go, oh, stories. And he says that point in this piece, we grow up on stories. We understand beginning, middles, and ends, plots, character development. We kind of learn that intrinsically from such a young age that we can follow it quite easily. So if you can structure things around that, it works better. I've got two things on this. Number one. Is there a Michael Jackson album called His Story? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I just thought I'd made that up in my head because as Dan was talking, I was like, it's literally His Story. That reminds me of a Michael Jackson album. Anyway, carry on. The, the second piece of this is that we use stories all the time in journalism, don't we? Like, we use... Oh, yeah. An anecdote. We start, we start <laughs> it with the anecdote or we, we tell a personal thing or we, we, we create a narrative to create engagement. And so... And it's all over the place, you know, like every big corporation has their story that they say. And mm-hmm. 
as soon as you start looking for it, adverts, you know, game shows, they're all narrative. Music really. videos. Music videos. Everywhere there's these narratives. And even in, um, I read a really good book over the, uh, last summer, which is the David Epstein book about, um, you know, being good at everything's better than just being good at one thing. And I can't remember the title, which is awful, but we'll, we'll, I'll tweet it. Um, but he was saying the memory champions create narratives. That's how they remember stuff, yeah. is that they create a narrative around the things that... And you think, well, that doesn't make sense because you're remembering more information, even more information you need for like every one thing. You're, you're yeah, learning like yeah, four yeah. more facts, but it completely works because of what Alex is talking about in this piece, which is that narratives are memorable. We're hardwired to learn narratives essentially which yeah, is why I english mean, is I, so great yeah english yeah. Is just, well, subjects is so great <laughs> but i was my I, it was making me think of my primary school education the the way that i was taught history was all through stories and i remember so much about the tudors because that's that's how we were taught it and i think Ooh, it's hang on that's a claim dan how much do you know about the tudors enough uh, to quiz gronia to test the claim of how much he <laughs> She learned through narratives on the well, Tudors. Go on. Well, Don't ask me dates. No, not really. Don't ever ask me dates. I'm never Don't sure ever. about dates. Well, yeah. Just generally. Okay, well, who, who were Henry VIII's three children? Oh, three, did no, he? I, I'm going to feel really embarrassed. It was Edward, Anne, and Elizabeth. And? You said three children. You said two. Edward, Anne, and Elizabeth. Yeah. Oh, I thought you said Edward, Oh, no, Mary, Anne, Mary, not no, Anne. Anne. It was Mary. Oh, I'm quite impressed by that, Corny, <gasps> yeah. to be fair. Fair play to your primary teacher and their narrative. <laughs> Who I actually I saw this morning. I bumped into her on a, a walk, my favourite teacher. Even silly yeah. things, like I remember her explaining how um, Queen Elizabeth always wore red in court because when she walked in, she wanted everyone to turn and look at her and she held up these chalks and it was one red chalk and the rest was white. And she said, which one do you look at first? Like, you look at the red one. She goes, and that's what it was like as she walked in. And it was just... Oh, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm genuinely impressed about your I Tudor knowledge. Mm, I love it. Right. Well, there you go. It's good, isn't it? And that's that what you said a minute ago, there, John, that movie Luff, because that thing about, we talked about that the other week, didn't we? Like, to learn something, you learn something mm. else to make it work. And like, it's like capital cities. You can learn capitals in like, with these kind of arbitrary kind of connections that don't actually make sense, but they're just funny ways of remembering yeah. them. And that's kind of telling and a story, the isn't spectrum. it? Richard of York um, gave battle in vain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've got a story there that you could kind of thing. And, and I don't know. I think it's a good bit. I think for a teacher, if you're struggling to get a concept across, or something, you can see something's not landing, or a fact, or important date, or whatever it is that they haven't. You think, oh, well, maybe you can try and structure it back into a story, or, or the next term, mm-hmm. try with a different class. You you can make it more of a story as a sort of. I'm going to hear something. You're going to learn this interesting story, and actually, that's going to contain the facts. Maybe that's a way to. Not work for everyone, but maybe on some occasions that will help do that. Here's a question. Yeah. What's the earliest story you remember being told? Hmm. Mm. That's a good one. Earliest story being told. Like, so just anything, anything book or... Yeah. My, my earliest, I, while you think I'll tell you, my earliest is yeah. my granddad told me that he was bald because in the war a plane had come over the top and got so close to him that the engines had blown all his hair away. And for about, <laughs> I remember, I remember him telling me, and I must have been preschool age, and I remember believing it. And and even as I got older, just being not entirely convinced that he wasn't 
not tell him the truth still because he had all these sort of marks on his head which could have been easily been burn marks and he used to work at ICI in Middlesbrough in the chemical factory and I thought maybe, maybe actually his hair was burnt away by chemicals and made all these different <laughs> stories of myself but it's always stayed with me for like even now like I just remember that story being told to me and I've been completely like intoxicated by this amazing adventure story. <laughs> That's great. Well, if it's stories, if that, then no, one I remember, and I've always remembered this, I don't remember why, but I asked my dad once how they recorded songs onto a tape. Like, how did the music end up on this tape? And my dad, obviously, and it took me a long time to realize that he must have just been having fun, but he said to me, Oh, they shrink the musicians, <laughs> oh! put them inside oh. the tape, and they play their music, and it goes onto the tape. And, and honestly, it took me years and years to think he wasn't just kind of like, oh, I don't know, I'll make something up. He was probably just thought it was funny. And I, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that's amazing. You know, just, just believed it. father trolling you. And that's, <laughs> but obviously, I suppose the good thing about, the thing about these stories though, is like, I remember that, but I didn't learn anything from that. <laughs> like, did I? Because that's not how they you do it. not to trust your dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. How about you, Cornia? I think the first stories I remember are poems. Like, you know, like nursery rhymes and things. And I remember yeah. sitting with my mum and, and being, and the stories that were in the, the poems, even like silly things like Dr. Foster went to Gloucester in the shower of rain. And that, like, I can picture in my head what I thought Dr. Dr. Foster looked like. Looked like, yeah. And um, Farrah Jacka and that kind of like thing. Like Saran Jones, I'd have thought. <laughs> I have him a bit more like um, Winston Churchill for some reason. I don't know why. I think Dr. Foster just looked a very plump man. Like with a big umbrella looking gruff. Oh, I, I thought it was like a really friendly Dr. Foster. Just, yeah, some psychologists have listened to this going, they're, they're all three of them are completely messed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine, mine's on the TV show. I suppose anyone listening who doesn't get my reference there, that was a, there was a TV show called Dr. Foster with Saran Oh, Jones, that was the really I, awful ITV, one with lots of people having affairs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Ups, uh, clearly upset Gronia, this one. Um, it was too upsetting. I, so many people... Well, we know Gronia's thoughts on... <laughs> <laughs> So I think um, it, you have a read of Alex's piece. It's, it's a very quick piece, but he packs a lot into those 500 words. It's, it's very dense. But I think yes, before we yes. go, Dan, I don't think we can leave this without talking about your um, My Best Teacher podcast this week because you have a living legend on that podcast. I <laughs> Indeed, mean, yes, we status, do. Martin, like, I mean... Yeah, Martin Roberts. There you go. I've, I've just straight off the bat, Martin Roberts, Homes Under the Hammer. And, and various other things. He was on I'm a Celebrity a few years ago. And he's got, I follow him on Twitter and he's really great on Twitter. He engages with people loads and he posts a lot of things. And I mean, if you, if you don't like people who post a lot, he might not be a few, but I, I really like it. And he's, yeah, he's, he's a nice chap. And he's really, I actually spoke to him ages ago now. It's been ages since he went live. We had a really good chat. Um, he had an interesting, and he had a great teacher. He talks about the teacher he had really, really nicely. One of those ones that really like hits you in the feels like oh this guy was clearly a good teacher mm. you know like more than just a teacher he was he was someone who sort of loomed large in that period of time of his life and he opens up a bit about it talks how he was bullied at school a little bit and that sort of obviously had a negative impact on him but he sort of has turned that into he does a lot of work now to help kids sort of understand their emotions and he's written books that he sends into schools and amazing thing he did last year where he got sort of twenty thousand copies of this book he wrote for free he sent them all every single primary school and public library got two copies of this book and every and something like 4,000 secondary schools, okay. an amazing number, and all for free. And it was partly this idea to help kids understand their emotions and partly said that all kids would have their own book, you know, just a book that was theirs. Oh, no, so that was a different project he'd done as well. But yeah, he did some amazing That's stuff. That's what got school. me so, about him. Yeah, really, really nice interview. He had such nice things to say about school and then suddenly you hear that he was bullied and yet despite being bullied, quite badly yeah. bullied, he says, it's he's still got these really fond memories of school and I think that's quite rare to yeah. 
to yeah. be bullied at school and to think fondly on school. So, you know, huge teachers there. Yeah, well, I when I was interviewing him, we were chatting away and it all sounded really nice. And I said, oh, so obviously it sounds like you really enjoyed school. And you're like, wow, actually I was quite badly bullied. And I felt a bit like, oh God, you know, but you were obviously open, happy to talk about it. But to your point there, John, yeah, absolutely. Like he was so positive about the good mm. stuff, which I think shows, doesn't it, that that how good it was, that it still has that kind of, he's happy to chat about school and open up about it all because it wasn't so bad as to ruin everything because he did have these good teachers, good moments, mm. good memories. And we've got some great other episodes coming up. Also, I interviewed Gordon Buchanan recently, the wildlife photographer, because he was talking about food tech earlier and he he did food tech at school. And we were joking. We were saying, yeah, why wouldn't you want to do a subject where you get to make bakewell tarts and lasagnas and then eat them at the end of the lesson? Like, isn't that the best <laughs> thing you could ever... Like, now, I'd love to just cook food all in school and then eat it. Like, Unless brilliant. you make Cornish pasties with puff pastry. <laughs> Unless you make... And they get terrible Cornish pasties. Yeah. Button refuses to eat your food. It hurt. <laughs> it hurt that moment in my life, to be honest. And... But there we go. Enough of my personal sorrow. Um, <laughs> catch up with the My Best Teacher podcast. And we will be back next week with tales of decluttering classrooms and decluttering homes and decluttering minds. And we may even declutter the podcast by not having me on it, in fact, because I will be away. So we will be decluttering the podcast because I won't be here. But um, come back next week for some Dan Grognan, no doubt mystery guest. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief Podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.